Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Music enhances all life's occasions, and today, WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart has created a soundtrack of great American music for this holiday weekend. We'll hear his inclusive playlist of Americana listening later in the program. First, a welcome sign of life returning to normal for our city is the running of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Peachtree Road Race for this weekend. Rich Kenna is the director of the Peachtree Road Race. He's with us now via Zoom. Rich, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, as always, for having me, Lois. We last spoke in 2019, ahead of the 50th Peachtree Road Race, and the last one that was run in person because of the pandemic. Last year's run was moved to November as a Thanksgiving 10K, and it was virtual. What was the response you received to that November race? Well, the initial response was one of great disappointment. But as time went on throughout 2020, I think everyone recognized and realized that that was the best way to keep the Peachtree tradition alive while also keeping everyone safe during this pandemic. Yeah. We just got back from New York, and a friend we were visiting told us with great pride that he ran the peach tree. Uh, You had global reach virtually with that, and I wondered if that meant more runners than you might otherwise have had during that time. It was a very interesting dynamic, Lois. The the opportunity to spread or extend the reach of Peachtree in the virtual environment was great. We had more people from around the country and around the world participate as a result of it being virtual. So people who otherwise would never have even known about the Peachtree. That was the, the great upside to 2020 because... The peach tree is largely a local phenomenon. And any other year, 90% of the participants are from the state of Georgia. My goodness. Well, it isn't named the peach tree for nothing. Let's talk about the upcoming races for this weekend. What safety measures will be in place? Well, we've spent uh, many months now putting together a plan to hold the peach tree over two days. So, so that's really sort of the, the main uh, you know, safety lever that, that we've pulled here. We are spreading our participants out over July 3rd and July 4th. So the days of the week work to our benefit this year, meaning July 3rd is Saturday and the 4th is Sunday. So about 60% of the participants will participate on the 4th with about 40% on the 3rd. That allows us to give essentially everyone at the start line, 36 square feet to start. Now, we used to be known as the world's largest 10K. 
And that still may be the case in 2021, but our focus is on executing the world's safest 10K. So in addition to over two days, uh, we are also doing some significant screening. So when you pick up your race number at our expo or on race morning, if uh, you are vaccinated, you flash your vaccination card, you get, a, you get a, what we call a fast pass to the start line. If you choose not to show proof of vaccination or you're not vaccinated, that's okay. We're going to send you through a screening process so that when you get to the start line, you know that everyone standing next to you uh, has been screened and is healthy. What can you tell us about the COVID screening dogs? So I can tell you that they've been a great hit at the expo as we've gotten started. (laughs) It's really been sort of a fascinating learning curve for all of us here at the track club. But for me specifically, I'm a big dog lover. Uh, As we were looking to find a way to execute this world's safest 10K, we couldn't figure out how to test in mass, right? Uh, So we did uh, a significant amount of research with our COVID advisory group, uh, and we learned that large events and venues around the country and around the world were using canines to screen for COVID. And the studies now show that these canines who are trained to detect the smell of the COVID protein are accurate and to, to the point of roughly 97% a higher accuracy than PCR tests. So this has been a great way for us to test people in mass in a relatively quick environment and, and one that is kind of fun. It is. I When I read about that study just a few weeks ago, I think there was a study in Thailand with the dog citing that amazingly high rate of percentage of detection. I just thought, ah, one more bit of evidence that they are the noblest of species. And here you are in Atlanta doing it. Is there any particular breed that excels or that one breed you have chosen? Are they all different types of dogs? There are specific breeds, uh, I'm told. So the, the vendor that we're using is, is, has a great reputation for training dogs across all sort of working environments. And I'm told that German Shepherds specifically uh, are quite good. Um, but any dog that is known to have a good nose is good in this environment. They did mention, I thought this was really interesting, uh, that they... While they they do use German Shepherds, uh, they oftentimes are looking for breeds that are a little less intimidating looking because they are designed, they are working to interact with people. And some people have, or all people have varying levels of comfort around dogs. So they want want to make sure that these dogs uh, are seen as as friendly uh, and helping uh, keep them safe and not ones that are intimidating in the screening process. Rich, did you consult with other organizations that have already had races or will hold marathons to see what safety measures they are implementing? It's an interesting question, Lois. The short answer is yes, but the longer answer is most of those organizations are consulting with us because the way, the, way the, the calendar is falling, uh, most of these road race and marathons around the world typically fall early spring or in the fall. The world's early spring didn't happen because we weren't far enough along. So as the calendar falls, Atlanta Track Club and the Peachtree are really the first ones bringing this industry back to life. So there is quite a lot of interest from around the world Uh, and what we're doing here. So it's really fun, exciting, challenging to be sort of that leader, if you will, that the rest of the world is looking at uh, as we move back to a new normal. Yes. Now, although the peach tree is in person this year, the track club's offering a virtual option for those who are still uncomfortable meeting in person with a large group, how will that virtual option work? 
Yes, we are. And to your point, there is, is still a percentage of the Peachtree faithful who are not quite comfortable coming back together in person. We wanted to make sure we gave those folks the opportunity to continue their Peachtree tradition. Uh, so we'll have about uh, roughly about seven or 8,000 people who will participate virtually. Uh, and we sent off their, their goodie pack package, which includes their race number and their coveted finisher shirt ahead of time. Uh, and they will cover the distance. They need to do it uh, on the third or the fourth and submit their time and proof of their time on the fifth to us here at Atlanta Track Club. Uh, and we will note their participation so that they can keep their streak alive. Rich, will there be any difference in the overall course where participants begin and end? No, the course will stay intact as the traditional Atlanta Journal-Constitution Peachtree Road Race, but there are going to be some minor tweaks. As I mentioned, the load-in process at the start line will be quite different. We, we normally celebrate having 60,000 people all together uh, as, uh, as we have our flyover on the 4th of July, but we're segmenting people arriving, so we have less people congregating in one area. And then uh, along the course, a lot less density. Uh, and fewer hydration stations. So in a normal year, we have hundreds of thousands of paper cups that are served to our participants to keep them hydrated as they move down the course. But this year, we did not feel comfortable serving in open paper cups. So we are providing unopened bottles of water. Uh, so you will have more water to drink when you receive your bottle. But what we are asking everyone is to carry some social responsibility with them as they head down the course. And when they finish with their water bottle, they drop it in one of our very well-marked recycling receptacles along the course. What can you tell us about the Kilometer Kids charity entry? So in most years, the peach tree offers an opportunity for those who did not get into the race through the lottery or those who choose to help raise money for our free to all kilometer kids program. The opportunity to run the peach tree in a very specific way. Uh, and in short, instead of the usual roughly 38 or 42 or $45 entry fee, you pay $200. You get a nice extra t-shirt. You get a guaranteed wave up front. And the balance of your dollars goes to offset the costs of our youth program, again, called Kilometer Kids, which gets kids off the couch, gets them moving, and hopefully gets them to love the sport of track and field and running. Mm. What can you tell us about this year's AJC Peachtree Road Race t-shirt? So in a normal year, Lois, and I'm sure because your husband is one of our Peachtree faithful. Uh, <laughs> yes. Everyone waits until you get across that finish line. Right. To see that coveted Peachtree finisher shirt. Because we have a two-day event and because of the virtual option this year, we announced it early. I can tell you it is blue and the design has been very well received. Uh, by those in the Peachtree community. What I can tell you is we have five finalists every year and we allow the general public to vote on that design. So it's not the track club, it's not me personally. Uh, the city of Atlanta as a whole decides what that design looks like. Rich Kenneth, this has been such a joy. I congratulate you on your many years with the Peachtree Road Race and look forward to being a cheering spectator. Thank you, Lois. I look forward to seeing you out there this weekend. Rich Kenna is the director of the Peachtree Road Race. Participants at all levels of experience are welcome during the Peachtree. And for many beginners, the race ignites a lifelong passion for running. Peter Sagel, the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, began running at age 15. He credits his early start to having found a copy of The Complete Book of Running by Jim Fix, 
on his father's bookshelf. Segel has since written his own book on running, which is also a memoir, The Incomplete Book of Running. When we spoke after the book came out, Peter Segel assured me that readers need not be familiar with Fix's work to appreciate his own. Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running, which came out around 1978, was credited, I don't know how fairly, with the whole 70s running boom, because it was this book that said, if you just start running, (laughs) you will change your life. You'll improve your health and your weight and your fitness and your sex life and your diet, and you'll live longer and you'll be more attractive. It was a real manifesto. Yeah. Um, And it got a lot of people running. Uh, Of course, some of that effect uh, was lost when Mr. Fix uh, dropped dead. Uh, while running uh, at the age of 53. Um, and a lot of people said, see, you see what happens if you run? You shouldn't run. <laughs> of course, you know. But that that's... was not causal. No, no, it was not causal. It turns out Jim Fix had a congenital heart problem that he never uh, never got looked at because he refused to go to the doctor. But moving on, my book is not like that. Right. And I wanted to contrast a little bit. This is not a manifesto. I do believe that running is good and people should do it. But it's a lot less instruction and exhortation and a lot more reflection and storytelling. It's really a memoir. It is, yeah. Who knew that I would ever have the material for a memoir? You've, you've got a very good one. Thank you, Lois. What do you believe is the greatest motivation for people to take up running? Uh, to get the hell out of here, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, that 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 is that's a metaphor, but it's a pretty it's a pretty you know it's a thin one. It's close to reality. I, I think that. One of the things that I note early on in the book is that a lot of people, including myself, turn to running seriously later in life, meaning uh, unlike, say, oh, I don't know, tennis. It's not something you pick up as a child and continue through your life. It's something that a lot of people turn to after the age of 30, let's say. Uh, if you look around the field at any local 10K, you'll see it, it tends older. Hmm. And I think the reason for that is that people start running when they feel a need to get away, to get moving, to make a change. And running has always, back to Jim Fix, uh, held this promise of transformation. Just start running. You're, you will leave your problems behind. That's not true, <laughs> it turns out, as I found out. But it certainly makes them a little different. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier, in my view, to deal with something at a moderate pace outside than it is sitting in your couch. Yeah, and you address that at length. Oh, yes. I loved your recommendations for how one should start to run. Uh, yeah. Would you elaborate what you say in the book? Well, this is what you do. You put on a pair of sneakers and you go for a run. <laughs> it, it, that's one of the great things about running. You don't need equipment. You don't need instruction. Everybody knows how to run. We were all, to coin a phrase, born to run. At first, you don't even need real running shoes. Any pair of sneakers will work. Uh, You don't need running shorts. If you're a woman, you probably want a good sports bra. But that's really about it. Um, There's nothing you need. And because there's no skill involved, although some might differ, it really is something you get better at simply by doing. It, It is a sport accessible to everyone. Now, there are many people who use coaches. There are many people who seek out expertise for training, and I do that myself. But simply to run is something available to all of us right now. In a weird way, it's almost like what Forrest Gump did, as he just (laughs) said, I decided to go running, and he did, and I recommend it. Now, the trick, of course, is sticking with it. (laughs) That is a whole other challenge, but which I have more complex advice. Peter, you describe how you went from being a person who ran to being a runner. Yeah. What's the difference? Uh, the, the best way I can put it is it's kind of a mindset. Uh, somebody who runs might be somebody who says, yeah, three days a week, I get up a little early and I go down to the gym and I get on a treadmill and I do three miles in the treadmill. And it's something you do uh, because you should. A runner is somebody who will go nuts if he or she hasn't been able to run for more than, say, two days in a row. And that's definitely me. Uh, If I can't run, I lose a little bit of sanity for every day (laughs) I'm I'm off my feet. And that really is maybe the the difference. It's not certainly pace. It's not winning races, for goodness sake, because that's something I've never done. It's, It's whether or not it's something you do 
or part of who you are. Ah. And it's definitely uh, the latter in my case. So as a topic, why does running have what you call a narcissistic focus on the self? Well, it's because running for one thing is something most people pick up for self-improvement, i.e. nobody picks up running, especially later in life, to achieve athletic glory. You do it because you feel you need to make a change. There are things about yourself that you want to change. They could be as simple as losing weight, becoming more fit, becoming more alert, uh, improving your... And now I sound like Jim Fix, I know. Improving <laughs> your diet and your sex life and your health and your outlook. But it, it's, it's something that you do because you want to change. The nature and limits of that change are something I've thought a lot about. Um, it, it's not a team sport. You know, although I do think that finding a running group is very important. So you're not doing it. Most people aren't starting to do it for solidarity and com camaraderie. I mean, let me put it this way. If if you're if you're lonely and you want to, like, get out there and make friends, you should probably join a recreational bowling league or a volleyball team, you know, down on the beach like here in Chicago. Running is something you do for yourself. And for most people do it by themselves, although I think that's something that people should reconsider. Peter Sagel, the avid runner and host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You can hear our interview in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Happy Independence Day. It's time for fireworks, food, and, of course, fun music. Dr. Scott Stewart is in the studio with some music to evoke and provoke as we observe our nation's birthday. Scott, welcome back to City Lights. Hey, thanks, Lois, and happy 4th of July to you. I think we all have so many wonderful memories of live or televised 4th of July concerts. And these are all merged in with memories of family and friends and cookouts and parades and fireworks celebrations, all very Americana. And I love that music is really entrenched in this holiday. And a lot of it's expected marches and anthems. And for some reason, the 1812 overture, I still haven't figured out why Americans love a piece about a Russian composer writing about a French war. I guess it's the canons. I never got that either. But <laughs> hey, the canons do seem to get everybody excited. They always do it. And it's funny how it's about an 18-minute piece, but there seems to be like a four-minute version to satisfy our short attention spans <laughs> at the end of a concert. But today's playlist takes a look or a listen at music that is distinctly American in feel and in flavor. And it's music that rejoices in America's ideals and aspirations and also acknowledges that it has potential to grow and become even better. The Star-Spangled Banner 
The National Anthem of the United States of America, music of John Stafford Smith, in that arrangement by John Williams. Eugene Corcoran led the Lone Star Wind Orchestra. John Williams, arguably the most successful and popular American composer of our lifetime, arranged that version of the Star-Spangled Banner for the 2004 Rose Bowl where he conducted the combined University of Southern California and University of Michigan marching bands. And Lois, as Indiana University graduates, we don't (laughs) often have the opportunity to go to the Rose Bowl, but maybe someday. I'd settle for the final four, Scooter. (laughs) Me too. The Star-Spangled Banner was adopted as the official national anthem by Congress in 1931 during the Hoover presidency. It had been a popular British men's social club tune, go figure, called To Anacreon in Heaven. And after Francis Scott Key wrote today's familiar lyrics in 1814, it became a popular patriotic song. The melody, which has a considerable range, is not the easiest to sing, to say the least. However, the tune has made its way into a number of works as thematic material. Yeah, it it is super hard to sing, but I think because it is such a complex melody that it has become good material for composers to work with who kind of want to mix it into new composition. One of America's leading composers in the 19th century was named Dudley Buck, and he set the music of the National Anthem to a concert overture for a July 4th celebration in 1879. This is a seven-minute patriotic piece for orchestra and optional chorus, and it was later transcribed for concert band. So after this kind of sprightly introduction, we hear the first presentation of the tune. Overture on the National Air by Dudley Buck. That's back from 1879. And that was the United States Air Force Heritage of America Band. Super creative orchestration or placement of instruments and use of the national anthem as the primary theme. Yeah. Sometimes composers are subtler in their use of well-known music. One of the mainstays in the wind band ensemble world is Early Light by Cal State Long Beach composition faculty member Carolyn Bremer in 1995. Yeah, this is brilliant music by my sweet friend Carolyn, whom we lost back in 2018. But she was a huge baseball fan, and she wrote Early Light to depict her excitement and anticipation Of when you're singing the national anthem at a game, and now you know the game's about to start. And I think we've all had that anticipation feeling at an athletic event. There's even a little sound effect moment when the slapstick, the whip in the percussion section, mimics the crack of the bat on a long home run.
Early Light by Carolyn Bremer. You could hear Carolyn's penchant for rhythmic play with that section in alternating meters of 2, 4, and 6, 8. Very much like America from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. And of course, you can pick out those little snippets of the Star Spangled Banner and the bat. <laughs> Scott, Jesse Montgomery is one of the brilliant young voices on the American composition scene. She was born in New York in 1981, studied at the Juilliard School as violinist, and studied composition at NYU. She's affiliated with the Sphinx Organization, which supports Black and Latinx musicians. Jesse Montgomery, who is African-American and one of my favorite voices of young composers now, writes passionately using language of the here and now, and often with an emphasis on social justice. In 2014, the Star Spangled Banner had its 200th birthday. So in tribute, she composed this piece entitled Banner, a rhapsody which uses national anthem material, but it also folds in American folk music, protest songs from the civil rights era, and anthems from around the world. And the result is this really scintillating and provocative musical landscape which attempts to answer the question, what does an anthem for the 21st century sound like in today's multicultural environment? And here's composer Jesse Montgomery speaking with interviewer and violinist Jesse Holstein about her composition, Banner. Yeah, I think at some point in Banner, there's like seven different pieces playing simultaneously. Is, is yeah, that right? That's right. And in, in fact, there's even an incantation of the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes. At one point, too. And so by bringing in so many different cultures, where you're just trying to sew the sort of the, the fabric of our, what America is now. Yeah, that's essentially what the, what the idea was or, and is, is that, yeah, so sort of within the national anthem, which in itself when it was first was born was an exclusionary anthem, exclu excluding, um, and also, you know, there, we learned in the past couple of years that there, there were um, verses that were specifically anti-Black and racist that were um, at the, you know, verses that had been removed. And so, you know, I, I, I thought, well, you know, if we're going to sort of resurrect this concept of liberty, um, you know, again, this is an opportunity to include voices that, that had been excluded and then, and, and also include even more voices within this sort of fabric. That was composer Jesse Montgomery in an interview discussing her composition, Banner. In a fascinating intersection of art and life, she provokes thoughtful discussion by contrasting the ideals of the piece. For some, the national anthem is a symbol of liberty and triumph over dark forces. For others, it's a contradiction between American ideals and the current realities of injustice and oppression, but in any case, a beautiful piece that not only is great to listen to, but great to think about. WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart, with the history behind some favorite American works. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE at Latta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. 
I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening, if you just tuned in. We've been talking with WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart and enjoying his July 4th holiday playlist. The unmistakable musical stamp of the iconic American composer Aaron Copland. That was a segment of Movement Two from Copland's Third Symphony, written in 1946 for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and conductor Serge Kuzovitsky. And Lois, as I recall, the copyists were like running wet ink pages out to the players for the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> I recall stories about this being a very um, up-to-the-minute composition. But this is an amazing 40-minute, four-movement barn burner, the Third Symphony of Aaron Copland. I think it's one of his most impressive pieces. He actually borrows from himself by expanding the well-known fanfare for the common man in the final movement. And even though there are no actual folk tunes, we can't help but feel like there are because this stunning Copland orchestration and these long arching themes remind us of Appalachian Spring and Billy the Kid and Rodeo and all of the wonderful music that is quintessentially Copland Americana. Yeah, and you gotta love that Americana of Copeland, Jewish boy from Brooklyn who studied in Paris and became the voice of the American cowboy. Such a cowboy. (laughs) Love it. Well, just about 15 years before Copeland premiered his Symphony No. 3, the American composer William Grant still completed his first symphony, entitled Afro-American. It was 1930. The Great Depression had just hit, but the Harlem Renaissance was already in its glory throughout the 1920s, that extraordinary era of Black American creativity and culture in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City. And the Afro-American Symphony of William Grant Still is in the vein of European symphonies, four movements with contrasting tempo markings, but it treats the blues symphonically as the basis for melodies and harmonies throughout the piece. So in this fourth movement, we hear a really heartbreaking melody that's reminiscent of a spiritual, amazing and tender writing in the context of a symphony. Adam Schoenberg, not to be confused with the expressionist composer Arnold Schoenberg, but Adam Schoenberg is a distinctive voice on the American music scene. He's a member of the Atlanta School of Composers, championed by the ASO and conductor Robert Spano. Schoenberg's American Symphony was commissioned by the Kansas City Symphony and premiered in 2011. It's also been transcribed for wind ensemble. Yeah, and it's such a fun piece to conduct and play. The American Symphony is about 25 minutes long. It's five movements, and I can only describe this as super fresh-sounding music. It's not necessarily patriotic, but it is, according to the composer, 
reflective of a respect and a responsibility for our nation and a hunger to affect positive change. My favorite movement from the symphony is the third one. It's a rhythmically engaging and optimistic romp. Kansas City Symphony Orchestra performing a segment of the third movement of the American Symphony by composer Adam Schoenberg. The composer calls this happy music, which it definitely is, and it's influenced by electronica and club music. West Side Story with music by Leonard Bernstein may be the most important work for the Broadway stage in the 20th century. It combined the two seemingly irreconcilable worlds of the composer, that of classical symphonic music and popular Broadway musical theater. And it's actually probably been since the lentennial that we've talked about West Side Story, but this is a modern-day Romeo and Juliet adaptation. It initially was conceived as a romance between a young Jewish girl and a Catholic boy, And then Bernstein met with playwright Arthur Lawrence about the idea of warring immigrant groups and gang violence in New York City, in particular Puerto Rican gangs, and it led to what we know as the current production. West Side Story, and remember, this is 1957, tackled the very tricky and sticky subject of race, inequality, and injustice in the United States. Movies and straight plays avoided this topic like the plague, and the next thing you know, you're at West Side Story, and you're hearing lyrics like, life is all right in America if you're all white in America. So in the America tune, which is a great dance number, we hear this back and forth of praises about the United States, and also a good bit of criticism about prejudice and discrimination. Ironically, Bernstein cast the entire American tune in these shifting meters and Latin musical style. I like to be in America, okay by me in America, everything free in America. For a small fee in America. Buying on credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. What will you have, though, to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America. Cadillacs bloom in America. Industry boom in America. Well, in a room in America. America, the ingenious song from the 1961 film version of West Side Story with Rita Moreno as Anita and... George Shakiris as Bernardo. The 2021 adaptation of West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, is set for release on December 10th after a delay due to COVID-19. Speaking of Steven Spielberg, in 1999, President Bill Clinton commissioned the director to create a multimedia presentation called The Unfinished Journey that was to be premiered at the Lincoln Memorial on New Year's Eve. Spielberg then engaged his longtime friend and collaborator John Williams to compose a six-part piece as soundtrack for the event. The result is the extraordinary orchestral suite, American Journey. Yeah, I first 
ran across this piece when I bought a CD. I think some of us still remember CDs (laughs) of Olympic music. And this was kind of embedded in the middle and I fell off my chair. I just thought I've never heard any of this before. I thought I was up on all my John Williams tunes. But it's amazing and entertaining music that sounds very John Williams-y, but a lot of us just haven't encountered, uh, I guess I would put it in the category of documentary you know, non, non-film soundtracks. But you hear all that exciting rhythmic motion that we get used to with John Williams, powerful brass, and really wonderfully descriptive, sparkly orchestrations. In this case, we hear a section from American Journey called Immigration and Building. Movement five of American Journey by John Williams is called Civil Rights and the Women's Movement. And it uses gospel language with a very prominent piano line in this symphonic setting. This is clearly the music of forward moving progress. We've come a long way, but we still, all of us, have a lot to do. Music of John Williams from American Journey. We cannot leave Americana without a salute to the March King himself, John Philip Sousa, band leader and composer who provided 136 marches, including the Stars and Stripes Forever, the National March of the United States. He wrote The Fairest of the Fair in 1908, inspired by an attractive young lady he had glimpsed at a food fair. I think we need to have more food fairs. (laughs) Hopefully we will. The Fairest of the Fair is a fantastic march. It's in this category that we call a trio march. So if you divide up all the little parts, we have an introduction, we have that first strain or the first section, the second strain, and then we have the trio, which is the third section. The break strain, which is the dogfight, and then the final strain, where Sousa typically uses the melody from the trio, just to kind of wrap it all up. And then, of course, most of his marches end with what we call a stinger, the little bop at the very end. So here's the introduction and the opening strain of Fairest of the Fair. Such a catchy tune. In fact, it was so catchy that legendary Hollywood composer, orchestrator, and arranger Ira Hirschen composed an entire symphony based on themes of John Philip Sousa. The third movement, which is usually the most playful of the bunch, is based on themes from the march we just heard, Fairest of the Fair. Notice the clear presentation of the theme and how pliably Hirschen veers off the path to vary the material in a very sophisticated symphonic setting. Thank you. 
And that's the 2021 July 4th Independence Day playlist. May your 4th of July be filled with barbecue to fill your tummies and music to stir your soul. Happy, happy 4th of July. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for this wonderful and inclusive look at Americana music. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday morning at 11, we'll bring you a special holiday program of Freedom Jazz. And Tuesday at 11 a.m., artists, cartoons, and murals. We'll learn about the new collaboration between Adult Swim and Atlanta's nonprofit Living Walls. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobe. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L O I S R E I T Z E S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Wishing you a safe and happy holiday weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.